0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at our scientific curiosity and morbid fascination about the human body and its amazing anatomy. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me today is Frances Larson, the author of Severed, a history of heads lost and heads found, which explores the dark and varied obsessions the civilized West has had with decapitated heads and skulls. Her earlier biography of Henry Welcome, An Infinity of Things, was shortlisted for the MJA Awards and was chosen as a Sunday Times Book of the Year and a New Scientist Best Book of 2009. She received her doctorate in anthropology from the University of Oxford in 2004. Francis, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, you wrote a book about
1: severed heads. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I often ask myself that. I was working uh, after my PhD um, at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford and um, at Oxford University. And that museum is really famous for its display of shrunken heads um, from South America, um, from Ecuador. And um, Wherever I went and all the staff had this, whenever you're asked, you know, or oh, where do you work? Oh, I work at the Pitt Rivers. Everyone said, oh, the place with the shrunken heads or the place with the shrunken heads. And people would come from all over to see these exhibits and they were just they are still the most famous uh, uh, exhibits in the museum and everyone loves them. And um, it just uh, struck me that it was us uh, who was so fascinated and we were coming to press our noses against the glass of the exhibition case, not the people who made the heads in the first place. And I kind of wanted to turn the tables a bit and look back at us and our fascination with these things and um, look into the history of how these um, heads had come to the UK in the first place. And as soon as you start to do that, you find over and over again, all over the world, that supply rose to meet demand that it was a western fascination with this idea of primitive savage people and headhunting that spurred um the local people to make more heads and this huge trade emerged and um people were uh trading heads for guns then using the guns to go and take more heads and then trading the heads again um And so this kind of led me into the whole, the other side of the story, um, our side of the story.
0: So I do want to talk about the shrunken heads, um, and we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But the weird thing about reading this book, throughout it, I was sort of simultaneously thinking about heads as objects, but also as people. And it was like I was in this constant state of fascinated horror, because each of these is an object and a story is really fascinating. But each of these is also a person who was alive and then wasn't, often by some fairly horrible methods. Is that kind of what writing the book was like?
1: yeah. It really was. You have moments when you can distance yourself and you're just thinking about it in an intellectual way and theorizing about how um, these, it's very hard to know what to call them. Objects, artifacts, people, body parts get traded around the world, get put on display, um, get collected and um, kept in people's homes and all sorts of extraordinary stories, Um and other times you're just completely overwhelmed by the horror of the human ability to do these things to each other. And that, yes, these are people with families and their body parts are still on display in many cases. Um, so absolutely, you feel yourself oscillating backwards and forwards between that person and the thing and i think that is one of the things that gives the severed head its power is it's the fact that it is both those at once it is a person and an object at the same time and you you can't escape both those things
0: I also didn't realize there were these huge collections of human heads and skulls just sitting around. I mean, there's hundreds of them. Who collects human heads? Um, Or should I say who collected human heads?
1: Yeah. I mean, the Victorians, really, I mean, through the 18th century but then really in the nineteenth century was the golden age, as it were, for collecting other people's skulls for um scientific and pseudo scientific reasons. Um the, the human skull became a kind of icon of um human evolution and racial um um analysis which is now, thank goodness, um, defunct. But um the Victorians were obsessed with collecting data um, for their um, evolutionary theories. And that data was other people's heads. And some of them collected hundreds and hundreds of, of skulls. And they were usually um, the skulls of people who were poor, um, impoverished, um Criminals, um, incarcerated, um, the insane, um, or the foreign. So, um, typically what we, what they would think of as primitive or savage people. Um, and of course, all those groups of people don't have the power, the family connections to keep their body parts safe. And so their graves were robbed and, or they were their body parts were taken from morgues or prison hospitals or um, h- hospitals um, and used in scientific th- theorising. And now some of our major museums, well, really, it's hard to find a museum that doesn't have a few skulls. And the major um, museums have tens of thousands of, of skulls in their collections. It's quite extraordinary. That's the legacy of our history of headhunting, as it were.
0: Why do heads fascinate us so? I mean, more so than severed arms or feet or other bits mm. of the human body.
1: We, we think of ourselves in our heads um, much more than any other part of the body. And um, there are are uh, lots of reasons for that and w- one of the most obvious has to be the extraordinary nature of the human face i mean we we are neurologically hardwired to react to another person's face um you know we're communicating with our f- facial expressions all the time and we respond instinctively um to the face um from when we're a tiny baby um the pattern of two eyes, a nose and a mouth registers with t- tiny babies. Um, so th- that, fi- the face, um, is, is the person in a way that other body parts aren't is apart from anything else. It's the most distinctive and recognizable part of the body. Um, and of course, there are all sorts of other extraordinary things about the human head, um, physiologically. I mean, it's four of our five senses are in our head. Um, our brain obviously is encased in our head. There's, there's so much packed into our heads in everything that almost everything that comes into your body or goes out of your body will go through your head or involve something going on in your head. Um, breathing, speaking, all these things are, centered on our heads. So um, I think that does make it um, a very powerful body part in a way that other body parts aren't.
0: Okay, I do want to talk about shrunken heads, because this was a fascinating section of your book. Can you give us some cultural context for the Shuar
1: shrunken heads? Schwa headhunting went on for for centuries, Um, but the time period we know most about is when there was more contact with um, American, North American and European um, cultures, and that's um, late 18th and 19th century. Um, The Schwa um, took Heads not as war trophies, but they specifically went on tribal raids, um, raiding parties to, um, specifically get, um, heads. And they believed in, in in the extraordinary, um, life-giving, um, power that resided in a person's head. Um, and they, contained that power by shrinking the head so the the bones were removed carefully um through a slit in the in the skin and um then the skin was defleshed and shrunken by putting hot stones and sand repeatedly into the skin until it shrunk down to about the size of an orange um and these um they were called sansas, um, Were taken back um, to the community and were part of long rituals um, lasting a number of years, um, which focused, uh, drew out the power in the heads and um, refocused it on the f- on the fertility of the land and the community and um, the women in the community. Um, very complicated spiritual and ritual beliefs which i have to say i'm not an expert on because i was looking at it from the european and um, north american side of the equation
0: so uh, europeans and north americans show up and let's just say the industry booms
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean what happened this happened in lots of different parts of the world where people um took heads um but f- the South American example is, is a great example. A lot of the shrunken heads that are in museums now are from um, this part of the world. Um, because when the colonial settlers came in, um, initially um, they traded for... Uh, local meat um, and local produce but as they became more settled and they were producing their own um, produce and meat um, they didn't need um, that from the locals anymore but what they what they wanted was the shrunken heads as curiosities people were just fascinated in the these items of um kind of symbolized the the so-called primitive um headhunter and they were traded back to Europe and America where they were sold in auction houses um and c- collected by museums um and the trade just boomed um more and more heads were made for sale so that it lost its l- centuries old um ritual Um, significance was gradually lost and people were just taking heads um, in order to trade them for Western goods and what that came down to was guns really um, and knives. Um, So you get this situation where um, the locals want Western arms and they're using those arms to take more heads Um, to trade back to the Westerners again, um, and it just it, at its peak, hundreds of people were losing their heads. And it wasn't. It used to be just men who would uh, who were the victims of head hunting, but then women and children um, were, became the victims because it wasn't about the ritual beliefs anymore. It was just about um, the trade trading and um, the kind of consumer value of of these. Uh, objects so most of these
0: throughout this time were actually sort of a horribly grisly historical tourist hat
1: yeah it was and it i'm sure it still would be if you if you could people are just fascinated by these things and they kind of do like we were talking about before they kind of lose their humanness i suppose um Because they have been shaped by human hands. They've been shrunken down and, um, modeled and decorated. They kind of lose a bit of that, um, horror of, um, a dead body and they become an artifact. And people are just fascinated. And there's still every now and then stories of people coming across a shrunken head in their attic that the, you know, great uncle Jim had collected when he was out in south america or new zealand or somewhere and and people um feel fondly about them and they they're almost can kind of, they can be joked about and they're kind of domesticated they would kind of become a part of the family you know so you do come across these stories we are able to kind of reabsorb these things into our lives in new ways
0: Do we have any idea how many people were killed as part of this industry? Or is that something we can't even know?
1: I mean, I I don't know. I've never seen numbers like that. But I have seen it said that, you know, hundreds um, lost their heads to this trade in the late 19th century. Um, I don't know, numbers are kind of bandied around, but I've never seen um, an analysis that actually tries to estimate how many are now still in museum collections. But there are quite a few in various museum collections. It's rare for them to be on display now. um, But there are are still quite a few museum collections.
0: So uh, as with any booming industry, there's uh, also an industry in fakes that comes up. So this was true also with Shrunken Heads.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wherever there's money involved like that, um, there are going to be people who try to take money by, um, different means. And, and yeah, there was, in fact, some people say that there are probably as many fakes in museum collections as there are, um, authentic, however you define that, um, schwa shrunken heads. Um, and fake, by fakes, of course, um, we could mean anything from, um, It's still a human head, but not a native South American human head. So um, uh, bodies might have been um, taken from city morgues and hospitals and the heads shrunken. Um, So some of those heads will be um, of settler heads. Um, But also um, monkey heads um, and fakes made of other materials, um, like wood or resin or so, so there's a whole kind of range of fake shrunken heads out there as well.
0: Okay. Uh, Let's talk about the guillotine because in a book about severed heads, I knew it was going to be in there. Um, the guillotine as a device really changed the way society interacted and to some extent perceived executions.
1: Yeah. The extraordinary thing to me about the introduction of the guillotine, which was, which was brought in, um, to make, um, executions in France more humane, um, which it undoubtedly did because, um, the machine was much more efficient than, um, a a man wielding an axe, um, or a sword and, um, more equal so that everyone faced the same, um, death sentence. Um, but, of course, well, what I be- became absolutely fascinated by was the crowd response. And the, it's extraordinary now to think of this, but the, the crowd's response to the first guillotining in France was disappointment. They were disappointed because there wasn't um much to see, which is extraordinary for us to think about now. But, um, they had been used to long, protracted, torturous executions on the scaffold, um, which provided um, entertainment and... Um, and the guillotine was a letdown. It was too quick. Um, there, was, there was nothing to see. Um, so they, would, they shouted from the crowd, you know, bring back the gallows, bring back the gallows, because um, they thought the guillotine was boring. It's
0: quite strange to think that executions were entertainment as, as much as they were punishment
1: absolutely and i th- i think actually that's one of the main reasons that public executions were stopped in the 19th and 20th century because it was the crowd wasn't responding in the way that the authorities intended you know they were they were intended to horrify um and put people um off by example and actually people were showing up to have a good time and t- selling the best spots, you know, seats on people's roofs and in the, in the streets, um, for high prices because everyone showed up for a, especially for a beheading, um, if in places like the UK where it was much rarer, um, you know, that, or, or in France before the guillotine, um, beheadings were rare and so people would, come out in their thousands to see this. So it's always been a form of entertainment, whether the authorities like it or not.
0: A big question of the time was whether or not the guillotine was humane or whether a person continued to be aware for some kind of time span after their head was separated from their body.
1: Yeah, the guillotine was so fast that people couldn't believe that death could be so quick. I mean, one of the things about a swift beheading is it does draw attention to that moment, that kind of mysterious moment of death when. Does death actually happen? And people couldn't believe that it could happen that fast. Um, so they thought that there must be consciousness, you know, that the, the victim must be able to s- still be aware of the world around them as a severed head. And this really interested scientists for decades um through the 19th century and they did all sorts of grisly experiments where they would recover the heads um in the seconds after um they'd been severed and try and stimulate them um shouting at them prodding them um poking them using fire to try and stimulate a response from from the victim um and sometimes they did. In fact, it's acknowledged, widely acknowledged that a severed head can and does twitch and continue to move after... um it's been separated from a body. But of course that doesn't prove consciousness one way or the other. It could just be a physiological, um, response. So, so there wasn't, there still isn't an answer about that. I mean, that's because we'll never, you know, presumably, I, I hope we'll, we'll never know whether there is consciousness. But people now, um, I mean, my belief is an, uh, that, from looking at what scientists say is that consciousness is lost there's such a massive drop in blood pressure um within a second that consciousness is lost almost instantaneously
0: some of the stories were really eerie that came from uh, heads being lifted and then looking around, a little bit disarming.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes back to the power of facial expression. When we see a face move or eyes move or eyes open, I mean, there are stories of um, people's um, um, jaws moving and their eyes moving. And um, we we can't believe that that's not conscious um effort because we are tuned into people's face faces in that way and and really extremely alarming to 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 see that i mean it's unimaginable but people did people did people did do that to heads and people did watch and um there was never any consensus
0: you also talk in your book about something that is very, very current, which is the videos of beheadings that have been put online. Um, so now I haven't watched any of these, and I don't think I, I will. But clearly, a lot of people have. Why do? Why are we drawn into watching something like a beheading? Something that's really very horrible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was something that astonished me in my research. I, the the Islamic State um, murders had not happened. The book was in press when that news broke last summer. But I did look at the Iraq war and um, the beheadings of um, Daniel Pearl and Nick Berg um, and other victims of um, Iraq terrorists. And it was extraordinary the numbers of, th- that watched those videos and, or downloaded them at least. Um, you know, um, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, um, downloaded those videos. Um, and I think, um, the internet, uh, creates a kind of new, a, a new kind of crowd, um, a crowd that can watch in the privacy of their own home. Um, no one need know that you're watching. Um, you can kind of dare yourself to do it. Um, and you can also feel as though it's nothing to do with you as though it's distant and far away from you. Um, and it doesn't matter if you watch or not. Um, so I think the internet has kind of allowed this voyeurism, um, I haven't watched any because I don't want to be part of the, ter- you know, what terrorists want. I don't want to do what they want. But you can't avoid seeing the imagery is all over the newspapers and all over the internet. Um, so it's a very difficult um, ethical situation. Is how we. How we take the power out of that, um, situation. And I mean, it seems to me the only way to take the power out of it is not to watch, but then you come up against issues of censorship and, you know, of everyone, you know, should be allowed to see these things if they want to. So it's very difficult. I mean, I'm not sure that's answered your question. I think the reason that there are lots of reasons that it's, that that people watch um there're always going to be people who don't care too much and are just interested and find it entertaining um there are also going to be people who watch despite their real misgivings and are absolutely horrified and wish they'd never watched so there's a whole range of people in the crowd as it were it's a staged dramatic event that invites people to see it, and it invites us, it dares us, um, to watch, and I think all those things we've already talked about, um, there's the sheer audacity of the act, um, there's the fact that it magnifies that moment of death, there's, um, the fact that the head is is a trophy that is meant to be seen it's um it proves a person's death unlike any other body part and there is just a, a morbid curiosity that i think we all have to a certain extent not to the point of watching things like that for all of us but we all do have an interest i think in In the dead body. I mean, think of exhibits like Body Worlds, which is one of, it's the most successful touring exhibit. And that's, it's not the same. Of course, it's completely different, but perhaps there is a, an interest in, in the dead body and, um, that we kind of all do have that kind of horror and fascination at the same time.
0: Speaking of heads as trophies on display, there have been periods of time throughout history where after executions, people's heads were put on display. I'm thinking this is quite popular in uh, various points in English history. Why do we do this?
1: In the earliest times, um, so the 13th and 14th centuries in in England, um A head would be of a traitor, might be sent back to the king from the battlefield as proof of death. So, a head is perhaps the only body part that can simultaneously prove someone's identity beyond doubt and prove that they are dead beyond doubt. So, that has made it um, this. trophy of conquest um unlike any other and the staging of beheadings on the scaffold and the spiking of heads on city gates and bridges um was an extension of that and it was the state taking that um power from the battlefield and kind of manufacturing it um for their own purposes um to to prove their um their authority over traitors, um, traitors to the crown. Um, so that's where it stems from, really. It's an extension of um the the tro- the, the warriors trophy. I was surprised
0: to learn that there were people whose jobs it was to maintain and, let's say, arrange these heads. Uh, what is that job title, I wonder?
1: Yes, yeah, so the keeper of the heads from apparently from the 14th to the 17th century um, in London, there was a keeper of the heads who, um, who was probably... Um, a kind kind of watchman, city gates watchman, but he was also in charge of maintaining a good um, display of heads on London Bridge um, over the Thames. And um, that would mean um, getting rid of heads that were were, didn't look so good anymore, were, were rotting away, um, throw, throw them into the Thames, protecting them from, um, family and friends who might want to retrieve them. There are stories of, um, families of victims, um, and supporters of rebels, um, trying to steal body parts, um, away. So they needed protecting. And also there are, there is some evidence of arranging them to good effect. So the leader of, um, a rebellious group might be have his head put higher up in the middle um, um uh, the, so so there maybe was some effort at um a kind of visually striking display.
0: There are some pretty famous heads out there, which sounds funny to say, but it is true
1: <laughs> yeah, it is I mean actually if you're if in the nineteenth century if you were well known um you ran a greater risk um than some for having your head um, taken after your death um, because of phrenology and um, the immense popularity of the pseudoscientific beliefs in phrenology. Um, famous people um, did lose their heads to um scientists and collectors who wanted to study um the the shape of the skull and try and find um physical proof of a person's genius so um people like mozart beethoven schubert they all lost their heads after their death um to um Phrenologists, um, and collectors who, who wanted that kind of prized pearly white skull, um, in their collection. Um, so there are lots of, yeah, there are quite a few famous heads and actually there's some that were donated. So there's, um, famous Egyptologist, um, Flinders Petrie, whose head, he actually left his head to science, he left it to the Royal College of Surgeons in London, and they still have his head. Um, so there are occasions when someone takes matters into their own hands and actually leave their head to a collection, but more often, um it's after after you've passed away and someone will come along in the night and, and dig you up out of your grave. Is there
0: anything to the study of phrenology? Have we learned anything from all this careful cataloging and measuring of human skulls?
1: Phrenology was really influential in, we still now believe that the person, the personality is located in the mind. And and that is really a legacy from phrenology. Um, they, more than ever before, they thought to f- have hard evidence, real physical evidence of personality traits. Um, and they, they they found that in the shape of the brain and therefore in the shape of the skull, they reasoned that the skull would take on the shape of a, a person's brain. And... Um, I mean, cerebral localization, the idea that, um, certain functions and, um, attributes are located in specific areas of the brain is still, you know, the, the leading, um, um, idea behind, um, neuroscience and psychological psychology now. Um, although I think my, my understanding is that there are, um, Other arguments for how um, things like um, language and um, um, anger and different traits are how they um, emerge from the kind of electrical activity in our brain. But cerebral localization is still, you know, the, the leading way that we think about the brain.
0: It seems like the history of phrenology is bound up with a lot of racism of of the time and that people were always trying to prove that one group of people or one race was better than another. How'd they do on that front?
1: Yeah, they didn't. Well, they didn't do very well. So phrenology was about individuals and tracking um, personality traits um, through the skull shape of individuals. um Gradually, um, craniometry um, took over, and that was more about human evolution and, at the time, about racial um, difference and about trying to put different, supposedly different racial groups on a kind of linear historic scale um, from primitive to civilized, as they like to think. Actually, it's it won't surprise anyone to hear that it is full of problems tracking um, someone's location. So where they grew up <laughs> through the shape of their head, to me, seems to be f- really a flawed um, idea in the first place. <laughs> um, there's far more variation within skull size and skull shape within groups than there is between groups. Um the the size of your head has nothing to do with your intelligence or your personality. Um, you know, some people have small heads, some people have big heads. There's, it just doesn't work. But, um, But that was not for want of trying, unfortunately. And there's, you know, as we talked about before, the material evidence is still there sitting in our museums.
0: So this motivation drove, uh, I think, probably one of the heydays of skull collecting. Um, But more recently, there has been some effort to repatriate some of these heads and human remains. What's motivated this?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in the last few decades, obviously, there's been a sea change in Museums' um, sense of their responsibility as repositories of human remains and their responsibility to the ancestors of the communities of those people whose bodies and body parts they hold. Um, Thankfully, now there are much better relations between um, museums and curators and the communities um, of the people who they have in their collections and um there's been a whole um in the last few decades hundreds of thousands of body parts have been returned to um communities around the world and heads i i, I think are often the first to go um but it does depend on the people involved and every case is different. Um, for, for example, the Schwa, who we were talking about earlier, the shrunken heads in the Pitt Rivers Museum, they have never asked for those shrunken heads back. They have have never, um, approached the museum. So s- some communities, um, quite rightly and understandably have really, um, pushed to have their ancestors returned to them Um, but other communities don't feel that way about at the moment um, about the the artifacts that are in museums so every case is different but yes um, a lot of human remains have been returned.
0: I admit the morbidly curious person inside me is really kind of sad I can't go to a museum and walk through a collection of hundreds of human skulls. I would go to that museum and it would be a really fascinating day.
1: Yeah, and they're really um, popular exhibits and it is fascinating. I mean, this is the story of the book, really, that we are able... To distance ourselves and to objectify the human body. And a lot of good can come from that. Not just scientific knowledge, um, and your own interest in how the human body works. But also, um, there are lots of saintly relics that are still on display in churches, um, throughout Europe. And they're a huge cause for, for good, for bringing people together, galvanizing people for, spirituality religious belief so so it's you can't just say this is bad and we shouldn't do it I mean every case is different and it, it but it does it is hugely um challenging ethically because whether we like it or not time the passage of time and the and the social distance between us and the person on display does change our reaction to that item. You know, if, if it's a very old skull or we don't know anything about who it is and it's been there for a hundred years, we don't feel that sense of injustice and outrage like we, we obviously would if it was, um, someone who'd been recently killed and preserved in the way that those human body parts are. So it's very hard to draw the lines. And I think everyone is going to draw them in a different place. It definitely
0: opens up uh, me thinking about why people attend things like the Body Worlds exhibit, which you, have, you noted were really, really popular. And I've seen one. And it is just really fascinating to walk around the room and look at human remains on display and in many cases on display in a, a quite artfully arranged way and to both look at them as objects and to think that's inside me i'm i'm that on the inside it's it's a, a strange experience
1: absolutely and it is fascinating and another example of that is medical students who have to dis- dissect cadavers as, as part of their training and They find it absolute, you know, uh, they, they do find it traumatic, um, but they're often the majority of medical students who've been surveyed and asked about it are less traumatized than they expect they will be and actually find it a hugely enlightening and fascinating, um, experience. Of course, one of the key factors in this is the issue of consent it is very different to be examining a body where the donor has given their full legal consent to that to seeing um an examining a body where that consent hasn't been given um, so you know it there are a whole range of factors from passage of time to consent um, which will affect our um response to to these things but that fascination and that um interest is there under the right conditions, and even unfortunately, under the wrong conditions. It was really interesting in your book, you talk about the range of
0: emotions and the range of experiences that medical students have when doing dissections of a human body, um, and how the sort of ups and downs and the difficult parts and the parts that are just nothing but endless fascination. It was a really interesting read.
1: I think um, what was extraordinary to me is just how these often young um, students just take this on and they manage their emotions and they find it to be a positive experience. There's some data to show that students of, will um, choose universities specifically because they give the opportunities for um, dissection classes, um, you know, that, that they want to have this experience. Um, and yes, some parts of the body and the head is prime among them are head, um, hands, feet, genitals are harder and more challenging um, for students to dissect. Both because the head, it's both because of obviously the fact that you then find it much harder to objectify that person um, that they kind of the, it brings the humanness back. Usually, the head is covered up during dissection, and only the part that you're actually dissecting is uncovered, and that obviously helps with objectifying um, the person that you're exploring. Um, but um, also, the head is incredibly challenging because of its physical properties. You have to be quite brutal um for example to extract a brain you have to cut through a person's skull which is physically hard work but it's also very delicate work and you can't afford to damage anything in the process um and the head is such an intricate biological entity that um it's really quite intense um practical work. Um, So there's, it is fascinating. There's a whole range of reasons why students find it um, such a challenging, but also rewarding um, experience.
0: Frances, thank you so much for being here. It's a really, really interesting book. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Frances Larson or her books, you can check out francislarson.com or look for links on the show notes for this episode at our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me now are two representatives from the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology at Western University in London, Ontario. Haley Linklater is the Laboratory Supervisor and Body Bequeathal Coordinator at Western University and previously attended Humber College's Funeral Services Program and is a Licensed Funeral Director in Ontario. Hello, Haley. Hi there. Also with me is Noah Mintz. Noah is in his second year of the master's program in clinical anatomy at Western University. For the past three years, Noah has worked as a teaching assistant in anatomy courses at both Western University and the University of Toronto. Welcome, Noah.
2: Thank you. Thanks for being uh, having me on the show.
0: So, Noah, let's start with you. What is the experience of anatomy class like?
2: Nearly indescribable. It's, a, it's a almost a once-in-a-lifetime experience, I'd say, and, and most people don't get to have the privilege to be in anatomy class that involves... Cadavers. Uh, So, you really get a literal inside view on the workings of the human body in all sorts of different ways, whether it be the musculoskeletal system or the visceral organs, and even up to the brain and what's going on inside of our heads. So, it's a really unique experience, and you can't get it anywhere other than a wonderful educational institution like Western University and the other universities around.
0: So, during your experiences in uh, a gross anatomy class, did you think about the person you're working on and what their life might have been like?
2: Definitely. Here at Western, uh, we get very scant information about the individual who donated their body. What we learn immediately upon starting the class is uh, the age of the individual when they passed away and usually the general cause of death, and that's pretty much it. We don't get any detailed medical history or insights into the lives of the people who we are learning from uh, beyond that. So it's definitely quite natural to be curious about how the person lived their life and what, what kind of an individual they were. But beyond that, we're really there for the learning in regards to the anatomy. So if you can focus, you tend to focus on learning the anatomy rather than thinking about what could have been when the person was alive. But we do have a nice memorial service at the end of the year to commemorate the individuals who donate their bodies.
0: That's really interesting. I remember reading about the memorial service you guys have on the website. Can you tell us a little bit about what that memorial service is, why uh, why you have it, and what kind of function it performs for you?
2: Sure. I think Haley could step in on this question as well. But for as me as a student, it's just nice to finally give the donors, the respect they've deserved from the whole year. I mean, we we treat the bodies quite respectfully throughout the year and make sure that the other students that we're TAing for do the same. Um, But it's definitely nice to have a sit down and and reflect upon the type of person you have to be to donate your body to science and and to try to keep giving beyond beyond when you can give any more.
3: Well, I mean, I think this service is very valuable for the families of the donors as well as the students. It gives them both the chance to meet. It gives the families of the donors just a sense of closure and can sometimes satisfy their curiosity about what their loved ones has been up to for the past few years. The students all give very uh, heartfelt reflections on their experience, and I think the families find that very moving.
0: So what, are the, what types of things do you learn in a class that you wouldn't be able to learn if you didn't have a human cadaver to work with?
2: So everyone has the opportunity to look into textbooks, and, and textbooks give a very confident description of what where things should be, but a few things the textbooks ha, um, try to give you you can't really see until you actually have a cadaver in front of you. Um, most of the differences in regards to three-dimensional relationships between organs or structures to really understand how, for instance, uh, the splenic artery travels along top of the pancreas, you can't really experience that unless you're feeling and, and looking at it in person rather than from an image. And also the textbooks are always confident in the way things should be or where what place a specific organ should be in. But undoubtedly, if you're in a cadaver lab, you're going to find that there's many variations upon what the textbook claims mm-hmm. is the truth. So being in a cadaver lab, it gives you the opportunity to see that, yes, we all have the same basic uh, structures but at the end of the day everyone has their own individual uniqueness in where things are and where things are going or how different things are connecting. So I think it just opens uh, your mind and gives you a new perspective on the uniqueness of the individual.
0: What were the most difficult parts of the anatomy class for you?
2: In a practical sense it's very difficult just to be a good dissector and make sure you're preserving the correct structures. Uh, In an emotional sense I think you get quite used to being in the cadaver lab fairly quickly. Um, Like I said, initially, you're very curious about the individual, but uh, you can move past that and, and kind of become accustomed to working with human cadavers, and it didn't become too difficult for me.
0: So Haley, I want to talk a little bit about the process of gifting your body to a science program like yours. Now, you know specifically about Western's program, but in my research, it seems like the process is fairly similar in most Canadian universities. So I thought we could use Western as an example, but it should be said that if you're interested in bequeathing your body to your local university, it is important you do your research, as every program is a little bit different.
3: That's correct. What Western does is we would expect the donor families to contact us upon the 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 death of the, of the donor, and at that point, we would take into account their medical history and we would make uh, a decision on whether or not to accept them into the program. If we are to accept them, then in our case, the family of the donor should contact a funeral service provider, as they will be the ones to register the deaths in their
0: municipality
3: and provide transportation of the body here to us.
0: So approximately how many bodies do you need every year for your program?
3: Well, right now we get by with the amount of donors that we do receive, which is usually between 70 and 80 every year. I mean, we could always use more, but there are, of course, space limitations here as well.
0: So what types of programs at Western use cadavers beyond anatomy classes? Is there active research being done?
3: There is. uh, There are many different uh, researchers at Western, and we also get calls from our local hospital, looking for cadaveric specimens for specific research related to, for example, joint replacements or new surgical techniques as well.
0: So if you decide to donate your body to a university like Western, you won't necessarily end up in an anatomy lab, but your body will be used to further some kind of science education or research. That is correct, yes. So say you want to donate your body to Western. Obviously, your family has to notify you, but do you have to fill out any paperwork ahead of time?
3: We have some paperwork. We have specifically the Form A, which is something that you'd sign to indicate that this is your interest or your desire. While that's not a legally binding document, we do advise families to, to have it in their possession to sign it and to share it with their family members or their family physicians as well, so that everyone can be on board with your decision.
0: It does sound like something you would probably want to speak to uh, your family about before you die.
3: Definitely. Well, your next of kin or your executor have um, authority over your body as part of the estate once you pass away. So it is wise to, to tell them about your
0: wish. So you mentioned that not everybody can be donated to your program. What are some of the reasons that you might have to refuse a donation at the time of death?
3: We might decline a donor if they've had an infectious or contagious disease uh, or if they've had any recent trauma or surgery to the body if they don't meet our height and weight requirements, uh, as well as uh, if they have died outside the province of Ontario.
0: So what happens after the donated body has fulfilled its use and you no longer can use it or it's sort of, I don't know, is expiration date a good term?
3: (laughs) Once our our study of anatomy has uh, been completed, we will organize a cremation through, and we use a, a local crematorium, So we will deliver the body off-site for cremation, and then the family is given the option of receiving those cremated remains back for a private interment, or they can be interred at the University of Western Ontario's plot in uh, Woodland Cemetery here in London.
0: So is it fairly common for family members to request the remains after Western has completed the research?
3: Yes, I'm finding that right now it's about 80% of our donors will receive the ashes back for a private
0: interment. Interesting. so people really how curious are people when they get the remains back and how many family members uh, show up to the memorial services you guys provide?
3: Well we usually have about 400 people attend our memorial service. so wow. it's very it's, it's a heavily attended event which we, we really like. It gives the families a sense of closure and a, a chance again for our students to meet the families of those donors that they've worked on throughout the year.
0: So at that point, um, and Noah, speak up here, if you've had a chance to attend one of the memorial services, do you actually get a chance to interact with the family and learn a little bit more about the person that you worked on over the course of your year?
2: Uh, Yes and no. So you definitely get to interact with the families of the donors themselves. And it's always really nice to hear that those families are um, grateful that we've respectfully learned from their family members. And that actually, at the last memorial service, um, one of the family members also mentioned that he was also planning to donate his body, his own body to science as well, which was really nice to hear. That they're happy enough with the way that we've treated their family members after their donation that they also want to donate. But it is it's not quite that we can pinpoint. It's hard to pinpoint exactly whose family your the cadaver you've been working on is. So you can't really exactly find out their entire family and talk to them specifically but you can talk in general to the donor families and it's always i find i found it to be a very gratifying experience to talk to them and and see how appreciative they were that we could learn from their family members.
0: I feel like there's, I know from my standpoint, I've never been able to be in an anatomy class. And from my standpoint, there's a huge amount of curiosity as to what the experience would be like and just what you can learn having been in a you know high school biology where you get to dissect other types of animals. I think it would be really fascinating to take the class. Um, and so I'm sure some of the interest from the family members is just understanding what it is that you guys get from the experience that maybe they can't have.
3: I think sometimes they are very curious about it, and sometimes they just really do not want to know the details. A lot of them feel like they're honoring their loved one's last wish by donating, and it really makes them uh, feel good to know that their their family member was a teacher of anatomy, and, and that's how we refer to them as donors and as well as the student's teachers.
0: In your experience from the people that you've talked to, is there a common thread among the people who are interested in donating their body? Have they maybe taken an anatomy class in their background? Or are they just super science keeners?
3: A little of everyone. A lot of people just are, are altruistic and want see, they see kind of a burial of a, of a complete body as a waste, which is, is true when someone can learn from that. Um, a lot of the times they have told me about previous family members that have donated, so they're kind of keeping on with the family tradition. Sometimes people truly believe that they've been helped or kept alive by, you know, medical advances, and they want to do their part to contribute as well. There's just a a strong degree of altruism.
0: It's really interesting to hear that, uh, and actually I'm not surprised to hear that some of this travels in in the family, so I'm assuming that Mm -hmm. if a family has a good experience with one person bequeathing their body, that they might more family members might be interested in doing the same.
3: Well, I think so, and I find that, like, in the case of a married couple, perhaps, like, they've spoken about it with them, you know, to each other. When the first one goes, it's the other spouse that will make the arrangements, but then when the second spouse dies, then it's the children who just proceed to do, you know, what they did with the other parent as well. It just kind of becomes a thing. But so many people, that, like Noah said, are inspired by the words said by the students at the memorial service. You know, they've, they've made the decision... To donate based on hearing those words about someone that they knew
2: i think the memorial service is big on that uh, the students give really emotional and heartfelt kind of speeches about their experiences and there's usually some musical component that's also mm-hmm. done by students most often and it's just quite a nice wrap up for the year and, and just really shows the families how much the students really do appreciate what's what's been given to them
0: It's really interesting because it sounds from your description like during the anatomy class, you sort of detach a little bit and it's to some extent a non-emotional experience, but that there is this need and desire afterwards to be able to experience the emotion, both from a learning experience and for the families as a grieving experience.
2: For me personally, I do think you need to detach yourself and kind of desensitize yourself, at least for a time, Mm -hmm. because if you were to focus on the kind of emotional portion of what you're learning it would kind of it wouldn't allow you to learn the actual anatomical information because you'd be so kind of distracted by thinking about an individual and and who they were so you kind of have to put that on hold when you're trying to learn the hard anatomy portion and then you can bring it up later when you're reflecting on what you did learn and uh, it all comes flooding back and you -hmm. kind of have the emotional response later on
0: From the standpoint of the types of people who take an anatomy class, is there a particular program or stream or profession that you see represented in the room most of all?
2: When we in our anatomy classes, a lot of people take it and kind of in preparation for other allied health professions, whether it be medical school, dentistry, um, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, those kinds of professions. Um, Other than that, a few people take it um, in order to teach anatomy because they just have a passion for for anatomy in general, and they want to continue on learning and and researching and teaching anatomy. I'd say that's the main components of our program here.
0: So it sounds like there's definitely a strong representation from the medical field uh, in your program, which is really interesting to me because I think probably the experience of somewhat detaching yourself from dissecting a cadaver is probably really helpful for a lot of people later on in their careers, especially if they become surgeons, where that's kind of something you have to deal with every day.
2: For sure. Part of our program uh, as the masters of clinical anatomy is that we get to go uh, into a hospital and observe a surgery that takes place. And um, in a similar fashion to dissection, I would say I agree with you that the surgeons themselves kind of have to put their feelings for the individual on hold and get the job done first. And then they can kind of consider the bigger implications of what they've been doing after the surgery is over.
0: So it seems like for a lot of people, this could be their first experience to some extent of having to compartmentalize that kind of thing. Yeah. We often refer to it as their first patient for the med students as oh, well. interesting. That kind of sets the stage a little bit. Mm-hmm. Haley and Noah, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure, and it's a really interesting program you guys have over there. Thanks very much.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: And if you want to learn more about Western universities, Body Bequeathal Program, uh, we've got the links to get you started on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca You'll also find links to our social media feeds, to subscribe to the show in iTunes and to join the discussion by leaving a comment on our episode posts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week on Science for the People.